Good evening. I have felt the Lord lay on my heart a message about repentance. I know that just by introducing the topic of repentance, the carnal nature is going to become uncomfortable. In fact, repentance entails death to the carnal nature. So it's expected that there be something in us that is not very excited about the discussion of repentance. However, there's something else. As he says in 1 Peter 4, 17, 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 8, Romans 6, 17, Romans 10, 16, Galatians 5, 7, all these passages reiterate the need to obey the gospel. We participate in and obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when we die to the reign of our old man in repentance. Bury that dead man in an abiding commitment through water baptism and are raised to newness of life by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. How can I know that I've come to repentance? How do I know that my old man is truly dead? Indeed, we do not want to attempt to bury in baptism a man who is not truly dead through repentance. In the sixth chapter of Romans, Paul speaks much about baptism, and he says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And continuing in the same thought and topic, Paul goes on in Romans 7 and says, For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she is joined to another. Romans 7, 2 and 3. In this allegory, Paul's reference to, quote, husband refers to our old man, our former sin master. And the new husband he is referring to is Jesus. Paul is showing us that we are not free to marry Jesus unless our former master, the sin nature, has truly died. He is not referring to a level of perfection where we will never make mistakes again. He says in the last verses of chapter 6, quote, sin shall no longer have mastery over you. Romans 6, 14, also verse 22. Repentance is so crucial because if we attempt to marry the Lord, becoming part of the bride of Christ without having truly died to our old man, then we commit spiritual adultery. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Romans 6.16. 6, and Paul says, as long as that old husband is alive, you can't marry Jesus. But if he dies, you're free to marry another. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the meaning he's trying to give us. You don't want to marry another and wake up the next morning with a knock on the door from the old husband. You must have truly died to one before you can be freed and joined to another. And even once he is truly dead through our initial repentance, are we not instructed that we must die daily in order to keep that flesh in the place where we have committed him? The whole world, with all its technology and tricks, is going to try to resurrect that carnal nature that you denied, that you died to in repentance. It's going to try to put him back on the throne. But if we have truly put him to death, truly offered him as a sacrifice, then we're not in love with him anymore. Do you kill someone you're still in love with? The end result of hatred is death, and we're not any longer enamored with our old man. We see him as the source and reason for all our problems and bondage, and we truly hate him. As David says in Psalms 139.22, with a perfect hatred. Job said, 
I abhor myself in dust and ashes and repent. If you are still in love with your own perspective, with your own ego, with your own sense of righteousness without Christ, then you cannot put this man to death. Only when you learn to abhor that carnal man can you ever hope to put him to death. Job 42 and 6. We shudder in shame and abhor this sinful fleshly nature that has tried to usurp God's place and tried to bring us into the bondage that leads to death. Someone says, I don't feel that way about my carnal nature. Well, then don't even pretend that you're ready to start the process of repentance. You have got to feel like you have been cheated, like you have been duped and deceived time and time again. You have got to feel like you have reached for God's promises and been thwarted and disappointed to the point of frustration. And then you have got to be convicted that the one thwarting you lives inside your own ribcage, that it is your nature, that it is yourself. And only then can you hope to instigate the kind of diligence that would put to death this inner monster you have learned to despise as the charlatan and cheat that he really is. One hallmark of true repentance is no defensiveness. What is defensiveness? It's protecting the man you claim to wish dead. Whereas if you truly want to kill him, then your perspective will be, bring on the blows, the challenges to his pride, the rebukes to his methods, the exposure of his deceit. These blows are not going to damage my new fledgling spiritual man, nor hurt the child of God. They'll only damage the strong weeds of carnality that still threaten to choke out and kill the tender plant of the new man of the spirit. My life is hid with Christ in God. I'm not my own defender. What can man do to me? Don't call on me anymore to defend that old rotten nature. In fact, if you can help me get this man dead, bring it on. I want him dead more than anybody. Remember what the Lord said through the prophet to King Ahab when the latter released an evil man put in his charge. The man I devoted to destruction you have set free. Therefore, it is your life for his life. 1 Kings 20, 42. It is no different when God commissions us to come to repentance. He instructs us to bring our carnal nature to the cross, to die to the old man and bury him in baptism. And while we make an appearance or even a beginning of doing so, if we then let him rise from the dead to stalk about, then we have released the man God devoted to destruction. We have set him free. As Paul said, if I build back what I have torn down, then I make myself a transgressor. Remember also the anger of the prophet Samuel when King Saul did indeed capture the pagan king Agag, but was unwilling to put him to death. For whatever carnal, self-serving reasons, Saul preserved the life of the man whom the Lord had devoted to destruction. And this leniency represented the beginning of Saul's apostasy, resulting in final rejection by the Lord. Think about it. The loss of the kingdom, the undoing of God's call on his life, and ultimately, his untimely death and defeat, it all began with a little leniency regarding the man the Lord had devoted for destruction. Defensiveness can be seen as a resurrection effort for the dying carnal nature which the Lord has devoted to destruction. Paramedics, in their efforts to resuscitate a passing life, will employ all manner of methods. They will use defibrillators to shock the stilled heart. 
They will inject adrenaline straight into the chest, force air into the lungs of the deceased, understandably utilizing every conceivable means and method to resuscitate the one who is dying. And their panicky efforts carry on until at some point a resignation comes into their hearts. They regretfully rip their gloves off, glance at their watches, put their hands in the air and say, he's gone. There's nothing more we can do. This is terrible and sad when it is the life of a human soul. But if we are instead speaking of the sin nature, then this concerns dying to the source of death itself. Defensiveness becomes then our misplaced efforts at resuscitation because we're resuscitating the disease instead of the patient. We're in a panic to protect the one whom the Lord has devoted to destruction. When the sword of the Spirit has pinned the carnal nature with the tip of its point and it's about to die, it's about to lose its control in your life and you start scrambling to defend and explain yourself in order to deflect the lethal force of God's word, then you are a paramedic resuscitating the disease and not the patient. You are digging your old man out of the grave where you committed him. Stop investing in the corpse, this body of death, and start investing instead in the tender plant that is being renewed and made in the likeness of God. In our efforts to protect and keep him alive, allowing him some space to live, we become split in our loyalties. We may not know it, but we start to serve two masters. We start to become slaves of corruption again, while also pretending to be slaves of God. We become that double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways and will receive nothing from the Lord. We are invested in two immutably implacable foes, two mutually exclusive life systems, the new man of the spirit and the old diseased carnal nature of the flesh. But if you have truly and wholeheartedly renounced all affection and preservation of the old man and consigned him with all his rights to the cross of Christ in repentance and the watery grave of baptism, then you're going to stop reaching for the defibrillator of defensiveness every time the carnal nature suffers another death blow of truth from the hand of God. Let an abiding lack of defensiveness be a proof of true repentance in us. It may sound too simple or even counterintuitive, but the second hallmark of repentance I want you to consider is godly faith. If an abiding victorious faith has come into your heart that chases out all self-pity and excuse-making, all fear, hiding, and negative confessions, that is a sure proof of repentance. Because faith toward God is part and parcel of what true repentance is. We may tend to think of repentance as a negative thing and faith toward God as a positive thing, and so put them in separate categories. But that is not actually so. True saving faith toward God is part and parcel of repentance. The writer of Hebrews in the sixth chapter gives us the foundation stones of Christ's temple. The first stone that he mentions is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. One stone, two facets. On one side, it is the total loss of faith in self, and we call that repentance. On the other side, it is active, propulsory, indomitable faith toward God that says, I put all my confidence in him. Repentance can even be described as fundamentally losing faith in self, in self's energizing and power, self's perspective, self's righteousness or innate goodness, self's capacity to love or do anything right. 
It is losing any faith in self at all. But that is not enough. True repentance replaces faith in self with active faith and trust in God. Surrender is part of repentance, maybe even the biggest part, but it is not the whole of repentance. You cannot have repentance without surrender, but you can have a certain brand of surrender without godly repentance. Prostitutes found absolution at the feet of Jesus through active faith and the breaking of their hearts, though not saying a single word. Thieving tax collectors came to the house of God and left the same day justified, having truly broken their pride in contrition and humble prayer. An adulterous woman laid face down in a ring of deadly stones, yet heard Jesus say he did not condemn her, and so went home to sin no more. And so consider some of the horrid sinners whom God has gathered to himself and shown mercy to, and yet the proud he knows from afar. The proud will never find grace, true faith, forgiveness, or salvation. Satan is the monarch of the children of pride, Job said. Pride at its root is resilient faith in self. Pride whispers in your ear that you're really better than anyone else realizes. Smarter, kinder, more gifted, more righteous, even more humble. The proud buttress their sense of worth by investing in this image of self. When the proud are exposed as having the same rotten, hell-worthy flesh as all other humans, they cannot accept it for what it is, and so they blame someone or something else. In the secret counsels of their own pristine thoughts, they know they are intrinsically good. This terrible thing that I did, they imagine, only occurred because I've been victimized by the way I was raised, or misled by one I trusted, or some other construct. And to be sure, we've all been misled and failed by others. Yes, we've been mistreated and handled wrongfully in the past, but when these happenings are long gone, if pride remains, so also will defeat. Pride instigates all the resuscitation endeavors for the flesh, all the lame attempts at rehabilitating his image, the striving to show ourselves in the world that our sinful man was not nearly as awful as some may have thought or suggested. When your hopes, your confidence, your sense of worth are all tied up in self, then despair is the only conclusion that can come from God's biggest blows on pride and sin. In short, when you encounter the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you feel eviscerated because you have no identity apart from that enemy of God inside of you, which is your carnal nature. But if you have truly seen that in my flesh nothing good dwells, as Paul said in Romans 7, and that we are all worthy only of death and hell, then in withdrawing your entire investment from the broken shell of self, you can find the trust to invest and risk all your confidence, hopes, and prayers in God, His love and mercy. If repentance is losing our stubborn, resilient faith in self, then salvation is shifting all that stubborn, resilient faith in God. Paul tells the Corinthians there are two kinds of sorrow. One leads to repentance, and the other leads to death. Notice that he does not say that one kind of sorrow is repentance, but that it leads to repentance. Repentance literally means to turn. Sorrow is what gets you thinking you ought to turn. But if you're really sorry with a godly sorrow, you're going to go ahead and pivot. You're going to go ahead and change the way you think, the way you talk, what you do. You're going to make a change. You're not just going to wallow in the fact that you're a failure. That's depression, not godly sorrow. The sorrow that leads to death is the despair that the proud inevitably come to whenever they finally discover all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including them. 
but they do not accept this downfall of pride as an opportunity to freely shift their allegiance to another. If there is one redeeming good God wants to bring out of all the failure and sin in human lives, it is the downfall of pride. This resilient hubris that thinks, if I just had another chance, another opportunity, I would do better. No, you wouldn't, because nothing good dwells in your flesh. If you could just uproot that flesh and put Jesus on the throne, then you could do better. Only when we are convicted that the flesh is a dead end, incapable of pleasing God, only then can forgiveness, grace, healing, and saving faith finally flow into our lives. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, but humility comes before honor and grace and a broken spirit before the nearness of God. The blows will let up in time. The stumbling will stop if the image and idol of pride finally falls and shatters to a million pieces, never to be reassembled or resuscitated again. Repentance is itself a kind of death, but it is also a kind of life. It shares nothing in common with the death characterized by despair, giving up, turning in, whining and wallowing. True repentance always leads to positivity, even joy, hope, and victory. We've talked about this sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. And we've implied that only this sword can slay the enemy of God inside of us, our carnal nature. And we've said that godly faith is a true hallmark of repentance. But Paul said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. No one can just conjure up the divine energizing of legitimate faith. It is a germ of promise scattered by the hand of God, which we choose to take into the soft place of our hearts in contrite acceptance. If we have no regard for the truth, no awe or honor for the word of God, we cannot hope to receive saving faith. Hebrews 4.12 says, God's word is living and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and no creature is hidden from its sight. Anointed revelation represents God's diagnostic tool for discerning and exposing the nature of our condition apart from him. One hallmark of repentance is a sufficient revelation through the word regarding the nature of our former bondage to sin. Have we seen through the deceitfulness of unrighteousness? Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The better part of liberation is revelation. Seeing the otherwise hidden dynamics of entanglement and enslavement. The truth gives us x-ray insight that we should not remain ignorant of the devil's devices, the myriad mechanisms, thought processes, and emotional impulses of sin. A true, repented Christian knows he was begotten of the incorruptible seed of the word of God. He is addicted to the word, enthralled by the truth. He does not doze in meetings, nor cop a distracted attitude toward revelation. He does not brush off insights of nuthetic help that may come to him from a father, a mother, a sister, a brother. Enthrallment with the word, as well as the ability to articulate our liberation, represents true signs of repentance we are then able to show the before and after x-rays of our healing and transformation. Paul says, whatever makes visible is light. If someone claims 
to be walking in repentance, walking in the light of God's word and obedience, then he ought to be able to describe how he used to be in bondage and how God set him free. The devil's tools are powerful because they are mysterious, but truth demystifies bondage. It demystifies the mechanisms of sin. And so a significant hallmark of repentance is the ability to articulate the demystified truth about our former bondage. So I've spoken already a lot about death, repentance as dying, as death, as putting to death. But you may also remember that in Acts chapter 11, Peter tells the apostles about Cornelius and his household receiving the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit but the very resurrection power of God into someone's life? And it says the apostles glorified God, seeing that God had granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. So on one hand, we're going to talk, oh, it's death, it's death, it's death. But the death of cancer is a gift of life to the patient. Repentance is not all negative. There is life. The ordeal of the sword is to set you free from the death sentence of the tumors. It's repentance unto life. Repentance is death on the one side, the side of the flesh, but it is life on the other side, the side of the new man. It is not merely surrender, only letting go and giving up. It is also switching sides, becoming activated by a new purpose, laying hold of and rising up with fierce conviction, engaging with undaunted determination to now do God's will rather than our own. Remember how Paul lauds the Corinthians for what their repentance produced in them. When the Japanese government surrendered after the two atomic bombs, their surrender was complete, was it not? Yet that did not mean they had active faith in the Allied powers. Hardly. They capitulated. They yielded. But they did not have faith. So surrender may be the biggest part of repentance, but it is not repentance in its entirety. Repentance is not merely a passive thing that says, I know I'm wrong, I admit it, I give up. It is a passive thing and an active thing. True repentance acknowledges wrongdoing and puts to death all the excuses, but just as importantly, it shifts its allegiance to God. In Ephesians 2 and 1, Paul says, You, God made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Death used to get its way through you. The spirit of this air, which is the devil, used to accomplish things through you. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. As surely as God works through faithful obedience, the devil also works through disobedience. You also used to conduct yourself in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath, just as all the others. Listen to what he's saying. He says, you were a child of wrath by nature. And then he says, just like all the others, you're not an exception. You're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. There is none good, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But notice that Paul does not tell them they are children of wrath by circumstance. 
He does not even say you were children of wrath by contamination, by bad influence. He says you are children of wrath by nature. We're not dealing with a circumstantial problem. We are dealing with a core problem of nature. The circumstances weren't what prompted the sin. Their nature is what produced transgression. If we believe that a change in nature is not necessary and that our sin is only a reaction caused by our surroundings, our treatment, our environment, our circumstances, our condition, then we will engage in Herculean efforts to change our situation. But we're going to be forever disappointed when the problem persists. The sin is not going to disappear. It will follow you into every new setting because you are a child of wrath, not by circumstance, but by nature. If you cannot deal with the sin nature, then your efforts to get past the consequences are hopeless. Surroundings may entice more sin. People may make things harder on you. Stumbling blocks may be laid in your path. But simply switching environments does not remove sin. It may cause your sin nature to become chameleon, changing its form and flavor. But if it does not die, transplanting it is not going to save it. The Apostle John in 1 John 2 and 9 says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's unpack this. Notice that it says there is no cause for stumbling in him indicating for us that the source of stumbling is internal to a man second the cause for stumbling is the sin nature evidenced by a lack of self-sacrificial love for one's brother as john tells us in the very next chapter we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren there are numerous versions of love and these are even marked in the New Testament by different Greek words, eros, phileo, agape. But John tells us in the fourth chapter of this same book, God is agape. This agape love is a love which sacrifices itself on behalf of that which it claims to care about. Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. If the core expression of the sin nature is self-preservation, then you can see why self-sacrificing love becomes another key hallmark of repentance. You can't lay down your life in abiding service and sacrifice for others if the self-protective nature is still in control. Our carnal sinful nature is outfitted with an auto-defense mechanism to prevent its own death. It's a virus with a built-in dynamic, adapting intelligent immunity to every cure. So long as self-protection rules us, it inherently disallows us from finding this love which lays down its life. So the cause for stumbling continues inside because we do not love our brother. We have not come to repentance. And the cause for stumbling is not circumstantial. It is our nature. It lives in our chest. How can we lay down our life if we're still seeking to save it? And just like some charlatans will fake their own death in order to get off the hook from the crimes they have committed, so also some Christians fake their own repentance. They fake their own spiritual death. They're like animals who have learned the posture of death and think if they will just imitate that posture, no one will know the difference. 
They think they're learning how to look like repented people. But if it doesn't come from inside, God looks on the heart. If it doesn't come from inside, the only one you're deceiving is yourself. If you say in your heart, he is so rotten, that is so mean, that is so evil, but I am going to be so sanctimonious and humble, watch me. And you put on these airs of brokenness. You're a pretender. You're faking your own death. But if you truly feel that you are worthy of hell and that anything better than hell is an unmerited grace and mercy, then you cannot cling to your rights. You let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. When David is fleeing Jerusalem, running for his life, this jerk named Shemaiah comes out and starts blaspheming and cursing the king. David doesn't strike poses. He doesn't do this little gushing display. Oh, I just love you. Christ's love be with you. No, he says, don't kill the man because God may be using him to deal with me about things I don't know about. That's somebody who really knows what they're worthy of. That's someone who's really lost their rights, laid down their illusions of deservedness. That's not something they're pretending when daddy's watching or their minister's watching. That's the way they really feel inside. That's someone who can beat their breast and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you have not lost your sense of deservedness, there is no chance that you have come to repentance. Because if you knew what you deserved, you would never reach for it again. The carnal nature learns mannerisms that imitate born-again Christians. It's usually easy to spot because they end up exaggerating these mannerisms and things they imagine a bona fide repentant Christian would do to the point of becoming a caricature. I have found that excessive groveling and laying back of one's ears and gushing martyrdom spirits are hallmarks of unrepentance. If I'm around someone and there is this tone of excessive submission, I immediately say, oh, he's still in rebellion because that is just a pretense. That is not coming from a true contrition that acknowledges what he deserves before God. That's, that's trying to be excessive to the point that someone will say, oh, no, you don't have to be that honoring. The woman who came into Simon the Pharisee's house with an alabaster box, I tell you, she was not striking poses. She was not copying mannerisms. Oh, God, she was driven inside by the conviction of what she was worthy of, but also by the promise of coming into the grace of someone who could help her. Some will pretend to have true faith in God and true surrender, but hide behind a claim that they don't understand. They'll often say something like this. Oh, I just believe, I believe God, but I just don't understand. Makes no sense whatsoever. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. If the word of God didn't convict you, then you don't have faith. <laughs> and if it did convict you, you understand everything you need to understand, that it's true and you're not. You understand that God is in control. If you have faith in God, you're not left with any fears of man that could possibly ensnare you. Faith displaces fear. This is because it is not just the loss of confidence in self. To repeat, it is trust in the presence of God, that active energizing of the Spirit, the confidence that you have fully placed in the Lord. John says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out 
all fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Fear involves punishment. Will there be punishment if we do evil? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. The only reason we should fear is if, while claiming to be submitted to God, we are still doing evil, which deserves punishment. But if we have faith in God, then we're done with evil. The one who fears is not perfected in love. The one who fears is not perfected in love. So many want to read this scripture, something like this. Perfect love casts out all fear. You all just need to love me more. And if you will, then I won't fear anymore. I need more love coming in, and that'll get rid of my fear. I accept that that's true on one level, but that's not precisely what he's saying. To paraphrase, he is saying, He who fears has not himself been perfected by loving others. The love that casts out fear comes from inside the house and throws fear out the window. It doesn't stay bunkered inside and and tell others, please love me more and I'll stop being fearful. It throws fear from the inside out and says, I am not going to believe my lies anymore. I am not going to submit to this fear anymore. I hear a voice calling me that I trust and believe. There you go, fear. Get out. I'm going to love with the love that God has given to me. I'm going to love him because he first loved me. I'm not going to love in word and tongue, but in deed and truth. I'm going to love in the way that lays down my life in love for others. And if I'm still caught in the bonds of fear, it's because I haven't gotten off my seat and started learning what it means to truly love. You see, Simon Peter was warned before the crucifixion that he was going to deny Jesus. But Simon thought he wouldn't because his love was sufficient. Jesus knew that Simon still had the self-preserving carnal nature alive inside of him. So Jesus pointed to the other side and said, when you are converted, when you've come to repentance, you're going to be a strength to your brothers. And Jesus came to Simon after his betrayal and said, let's talk about love. Because if you really loved me, Simon, you would have thrown fear out the window. You would have been able to do what was needed. But let's talk about this love that you don't really have. Amen. And if you know you don't have it, well, that doesn't leave you in defeat. It just tells you to go to Jerusalem and tarry until the love of God can be shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. He who fears has not been perfected by loving. He does not know how to love perfectly. But perfect love casts out all fear. It doesn't extract it. It casts it out from the inside. One way for repentance to gradually be undone is by small adjustments that turn every matter to be a question about how it affects me, my needs, my losses, my rights, my future, my feelings. What does this entail? It entails that self is at the center of one's life again. The corrupt tree of self that should have been uprooted has started to stand back up and all of the events and questions of life begin to revolve around self instead of God. Self-centeredness describes the exact opposite condition as repentance. You cannot be centered in self, focused on self, driven by the needs and wants of self, 
and claim to be repented. If you look around you and your heart is moved with love and your soul cries out, I can't believe I'm in the company of brothers and sisters like these. Well, then you can be assured in your heart that you are still in the kingdom of the son of his love. But if you look around you and you say, what's in this for me? Why don't they treat me better and different? Then you have need to be concerned. For as the serpent beguiled Eve, you have somehow been beguiled from the simplicity of devotion that belongs to Christ. You have been perverted. You have been diverted instead of converted. Slowly but surely, it has started to become about you, your role, your place, your desires. And then a root of bitterness is going to spring up because the kingdom of God is a place of sacrifice. As such, it is a miserable dead-end destination for those who still have the carnal nature at the center and on the throne of their lives. A hallmark of unrepentance is when people start to develop narratives about their dramatic sacrifice, about the great offerings given by their spouse or their children about the way they haven't been respected or they have been neglected. And this root of bitterness that springs up will be a lens through which you pervert all of reality. You will look on circumstances shared with other people and remember events in a manner unrecognizable to those who are repented, you will start to develop a narrative that puts self in a martyr role, that puts self as the pitiful victim. You will start to write in your own mind the gospel according to Judas. You'll have your twist, your angle. Well, I was there, and you don't know how my family wasn't respected enough, and My wife did great things and she wasn't honored and I brought the word and nobody seemed to notice and my children were just as gifted, but they didn't get the part. The whole of your interaction in the kingdom of God will start to be seen through the lens of this dramatic narrative that paints the carnal nature as a martyr suffering under the yoke of obedience. The kingdom of God is a miserable place for those still serving flesh. The kingdom of God is a place of righteousness, peace, and joy for those walking in the spirit, for those who have put Jesus on the throne, for those who have died to their old wants, to all their rights, and taken up their crosses to follow him. But if you're absolutely invested in the ego, the identity, the carnal nature of your old man, then you're going to be living in a context that is constantly confronting you with pricks, challenges, diminishment. The kingdom of God was tailor-made to put to death your carnal nature. And so unless you surrender to that death and champion the demise of your old cheater, you're going to be a miserable person then you might become someone who inclines to make a lot of seemingly good, noble confessions followed by the qualifier, but, or you make a lot of negative confessions followed by nothing. I really want to do God's will. I really felt it at one time in my life, but I've once felt so much in love with this I once was devoted to this fellowship. I once felt so blessed. I felt like it was the paradise of God. But, and the only thing you need to follow that but with is, it all became about me. I allowed self to take the throne and everything started to revolve around me. But kingdom activities do not revolve around self. 
So the one who keeps self on the throne is going to find the kingdom to play constant havoc with his ambitions. You just need to repent. You need to turn again and let it all be about Jesus once more. Perhaps you say, I want to do God's will. And I really felt the Holy Spirit in this meeting or that conversation, but I'm so afraid. I ask you, is fear something God coddles? Are there two kinds of sin, the bad sins over here and the pitiful sins over there? And is fear one of the pitiful sins in your estimation? The bad sins are pride, lying, deceit, doing something terrible like murder or robbery. But then there's the pitiful sins. And every time I hear someone has one of those pitiful sins, I get these warm, fuzzy feelings and say, oh, I'm so sorry. Is that how Jesus treated fear? Did he categorize it as a pitiful sin? There were three men who had talents, remember? Only one of them became a dead end for the grace of God. He became like the Dead Sea. Everything flowed in and nothing good flowed out. Maybe he could point to the fact that God had given him less in the first place. But then God would have been able to point to the fact that more could have flown in if he would have kept on investing in his faith in God. Do you remember what he said to the Lord in that parable? He said, I knew that you were a hard man. I had a perspective about God. And what was this next word he used? I was afraid. Oh, poor thing. Don't be afraid. Is that what the Lord replied? Let's chat about those fears. I'm sure I could pour in some love and cast them out. No, Jesus said, you wicked and lazy servant. What about in Hebrews, the third chapter, when he says, see to it, my brethren, that there be in none of you a pitiful heart of unbelief that would cause you to depart from the living God? Is that what he says? No. He says, see to it, my brethren, that there be in none of you an evil heart of unbelief. Why would it be called an evil heart? And why would Jesus call him a wicked and lazy servant? Why would God express such intense anger and utter rejection of something we tend to show a lot of pity for? Why do we look on cowardice differently than God does? Revelations 21, 7 and 8 says, He who overcomes will inherit all these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, but the cowardly. The cowardly. It's the opposite of the overcomer. The coward is juxtaposed here to the overcomer. Is an overcomer someone who's never made a mistake? No. You can't overcome something unless you have already started on the wrong side of something. Because overcoming means coming over. By definition, an overcomer is someone who ended up on the wrong end of problems, obstacles, failures, impossibilities. But they heard the voice of God calling from the other side of the mountain. And they got up on their hands and knees if they had to. And they came over it. They overcame by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, and because they weren't still in love with their life, they did not love their life unto death. And he is saying here in Revelations 21, the one who climbs over, the one who picks himself up and gets himself over that obstacle, no matter what it takes, he's going to inherit all these things. But then he follows it with this, but the cowardly, the reason we don't overcome is because we're cowards. There's something in us that doesn't want to face ourselves, that doesn't want to face what got us here, what really slid us down the backside of the mountain. And then he goes on and he gives this list. But the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral people and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part 
will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That pit, he says, that you were never able to quite climb out of, that pit is going to open up beneath your feet. It's going to become a bottomless pit and a lake of fire. You keep feeling sorry for yourself. You keep offering all your excuses. You better let something rise up inside of you that says, God, above every other sin, protect and guard my heart and deliver me from the sin of self-pity and cowardice. Why is cowardice the first sin in his list of grievous transgressions with the unbelieving murderers abominable? Why is it included in this dreaded list of those destined for hell? Because a coward is someone who has encountered God's love but insulted his grace by acting like the blood shed at Calvary was not sufficient. The spirit poured out at Pentecost was not powerful enough. The word of his power was not great enough to accomplish everything he said it could. The coward is the first on the list because he is an insult to the God who gave everything through Christ. And so the faith that comes by hearing the word should have been his, but he is someone who blocked his ears and stayed in his position of powerlessness only because he chose to believe his own version of reality that brought damnation instead of believing God's word that would bring liberation. All others are powerful sins, murder, immorality, sorcery, idolatry, and lying. These are potent sins, these are addictive sins. These are sins that have strong grips that weigh on us heavily. But cowardice is our weak response when we just don't want to do what it takes to get over that mountain. It's just saying, you've put too much on me. I don't think I can do this. I don't think you're worthy. It is an insult in the face of the Lord who gave everything to empower your victory. Am I dead, Lord? Am I still converted today? Well, do you have faith in your heart? Do you have love in your heart? Is self still at the center? Or is Jesus and the love of the brethren still at the center? Has your faith failed? Your ability to serve your brothers dried up? Do you still have faith in your heart? Do you still have love in your heart for your brothers? If so, then this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And by this we know we have passed out of death and into life. Are you hiding behind excuses? Are you accepting that whiny, pitiful version of reality? Well, then you're becoming a Cain. You're becoming a Saul. You're becoming an Esau. Are you standing up like a man? Are you saying, God, I'm going to wrestle all through the night until daybreak? I'm going to keep wrestling and grappling until I feel that blessing come again into my life that I cannot achieve by my own cunning or conniving? Well, then you might be one who perseveres with God. Faith might be producing perseverance. Are you hiding behind fears? Are you hiding behind unbelief as if it were a pitiful thing? Well, you better repent because that pit is full of sinking sand. And what does it mean to repent? Have I repented if I've only lost faith in myself? No. In fact, I may have just started the sorrow that leads to death. I've only repented when I've lost faith in self and all pity in self and all excuses for self, but I've also gained a powerful, energizing, indomitable, victorious faith in God that he is able and he is going to do what he has promised. He can make me stand. He can accomplish what concerns me today. All who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. But he has not given us a spirit of bondage leading to fear again. You cannot be led by the Spirit of God if you are plagued by the fears of self-protection. The two are mutually exclusive. 
If you're going to be led by the fear of self-protection, just give up on following the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. But he says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Just open up your heart. Stretch out your hands. Lift up your voice. And say, God, I've got fear right here in this place. God, I've got doubts. God, I've got suspicions and judgments. I've let phony pretenses come inside. I need you to put the Holy Spirit right here. And if I'll let the Spirit in, then where the Spirit of the Lord is, there will be liberty. If I'll just let it in, I'll get liberty. Come in, Lord. Open the floodgates of heaven. Pour over me. Wash me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. There is the breaking of chains. There is a tearing down of excuses and arguments that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Are you walking in fear? Are you walking in self-protection, self-preservation? Then you cannot walk in love because greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Are you walking in true love? Then you're walking in repentance. If you're caught in that self-protection, you are no longer receiving that spirit that would make you a son of God, that spirit of adoption by which you could cry out, Abba, Father. The only time this Abba, Father was prayed was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Paul is saying the same thing that came over Jesus that said, Abba, Father, your will be done can come over you. The same spirit, the same ministry from heaven can come to you, empowering you to do God's will in laying down your life as a sacrifice of love. Do you feel like lowering your head, looking furtively around, all locked up in your fear of what people are thinking? Or has he put the spirit of sonship into your heart by which you can cry out, Abba, Abba, I want to do your will. It may take some prayer. It may take sweating great drops of blood. It may take asking if there's any other way. But in the end, I'm going to make a complete oblation of my pride, of my ambitions, of my desires. And I want to do your will. As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Abba, lead us. Lead us out of fear and into courage. Lead us out of suspicion and into trust. Lead us out of our perspectives, our blinded perspectives, and lead us into the illumination of your enlightening word. There's a voice calling me from an old rugged tree and he whispers draw closer to me leave this world far behind there are new heights to climb and a new place in me
to do 